This morning we're continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to be looking at part four of a part of a four-part study. It was initially a two-part study that I've titled "Stirred for the Work." Our main text today is going to be Nehemiah chapter two, verses seventeen through twenty. And to just kind of keep the context in mind, we're going to begin reading in verse eleven, reading those verses that we looked at last week. So Nehemiah two, starting in verse eleven. Nehemiah says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. As I reminded us last week, I want to remind us again today that 92 years had passed since the first group of exiles had returned to Jerusalem under the command of King Cyrus the Persian to go back and rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And yet after 92 years of being in the land, we find that the people were not flourishing spiritually or physically or as a community, they were in great distress still, great reproach still, the walls and gates of the city still lying in ruin. About 150 years prior, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, conquers the southern kingdom of Judah, takes the people into exile, 70 years of captivity, pass just as Jerusalem, uh, sorry, Jeremiah the prophet spoke that 70 years would need to take place and God would allow his people to go back into the land. God made good on his word. King Cyrus being used by the Lord to send the people back into the land. 92 years though, and much longer the destruction had been there and it's still just kind of where it's at. There'd been some improvements, there'd been some reform that had happened, but the people were still, they were broken still. This wasn't a hope-filled people. This wasn't a very joyous people. This was a people in distress. When I hear distress, I'm not thinking of these people who are just like, yeah, this is awesome. We've got it good. When you've seen somebody distressed, it's visible. It's noticeable. It's like on their face. It's painted all over their lives. Everything's flavored by distress. Misery could be another word that could be used to translate that word distress. The people are in great misery and disgrace. And this is what Nehemiah is leaving Shushan to go be a part of. I'm leaving this beautiful kingdom. Everything's awesome and put together and serving the king, and I'm stepping into this. I'm stepping into misery and disgrace and and rubble. And, And that's Nehemiah here. That's where the people are at here. So when we read the things we're going to read this morning, we need to understand the significance of their response What would it take to get you from 92 years of what only could be described as great misery and disgrace to go, I believe God can do something new. And we want to be a part of it. The significance of the work of God in Nehemiah's life, but also the work of God in the lives of the people there in Jerusalem. God wanted to rebuild, to renew, to revive. 
And Nehemiah was going to be a part of helping that to take place. Nehemiah had already been stirred by the Lord, sent by the Lord through the means of King Artaxerxes, sent to Jerusalem. We considered what that would mean, the commitment that would take for Nehemiah to not just be stirred, because we can easily be stirred, we can have an emotional response about something, but that doesn't mean I'm going to travel 800 plus miles, five months of journeying to get to the place where we believe God wants to do something, and we're just really hoping that it really turns out the way that we, we think we've heard from the Lord pretty clearly about. He comes, he's got these letters from the king. We've already seen some of the opposition that's taken place. But after making that long journey from Shushan, Susa, modern day Iran to Jerusalem, we saw the first things that Nehemiah did and didn't do. First thing he did was he waited for three days before doing anything else, most likely using those three days to rest, understandably, to pray, to plan some more. But after three days, he gets up in the night, he brings only a, a handful of guys with him, he doesn't tell anybody what God had put in his heart to do. In coming to Jerusalem, he walks around the city, he inspects the walls and the gates for himself. He wanted to see the brokenness up close, so he'd have a fuller understanding of where things were at, what needed to be done, so that after being stirred by God to see, to really see things the way that they were, but also to see the potential of what God could do and what he wanted to do, that he would have the clarity and the confidence in knowing what to speak to the people. And so with that context in mind, we read these things now in verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. Nehemiah had seen the, the damage, the destruction for himself. And he'd lived sort of in that environment for only three days. But now as Nehemiah begins to, to speak to the people, he doesn't have to wonder if they had seen how bad things really were. Because for most of them, they had been seeing it their whole lives. Instead, he basically tells them, look, you understand the distress, how the city lies waste, the, the, you know, the walls and the gates have been destroyed. You know it all too well from experience. But, but what the people had seen and known, they had grown accustomed to. And maybe the distress and the waste and the, the destruction and the disgrace, maybe it didn't really seem as bad as it once had because it had just become the norm for them. You know, I think that's true for many people today. They're living in a ruined situation. They, they have lives that have been marked by ruin. And, and the ruins have just sort of become the norm. They've acclimated themselves. Maybe they've stopped caring like they once had. Or maybe given up because the hope that, that, they, that they once clung to, that things could change, have just sort of died over time. Don't we see that in whole communities? We see areas, you hear of like the, the constant, consistent murder rate in Chicago, in areas of our country that are just marked by gang violence or, you know, all of these sorts of things. And, and you wonder, there's, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of people even, who that's where they live for their whole lives. That's what they've grown accustomed to. They expect it. They expect to hear that violence is struck once again. 
They expect to hear about tragedy. They expect to see it. Why? Because when you're, when you're in something to that degree, it kind of desensitizes you over time. And I believe to a degree that has happened here with the people of Jerusalem. But I'm so thankful that God doesn't stop caring because we stop caring. That he doesn't become okay with ruined lives and ruined situations and ruined places because we've become okay with it. That he doesn't stop desiring to bring renewal and transformation and healing and change because maybe we've lost hope that he can do it. Can you imagine if God was like us in that way? If God sort of was moved in that sort of way, well, you know what, I just, I don't care anymore. Man, where things could be at for us. Because that would have been like from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right? I've provided everything possible for everything to work in the most perfect setting possible. I mean, I've created everything perfectly. I created you perfectly. I even told you the one thing that you shouldn't do, and you did it anyways. Forget it. You imagine if that was God's approach? Hands off like, I can't handle you guys. Or, or was it Cain and Abel when that could have happened? God's warning him, like Cain, like, hey, sin's waiting at the door. Like, you need to, don't give in to that. And he kills his brother, murders him in cold blood. At what, at what point in humanity, if, if God was like us, would everything have just fallen to crud so much, you know, so, so much early on? And yet he's not like us. He's consistent and faithful. He, he doesn't change his mind like we do. He doesn't stop caring because we do. He sees all the stuff that we're dealing with and, 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 and to a degree he's broken, but then he just still presses in. He's still wanting to work. He still makes himself available. He's still wanting to, to extend hope to us. He's still wanting to intervene. So thankful that God isn't like me or like you. That he's holy. He's different. He's perfect. Now we already saw in chapter 1 that in his prayers of confession, Nehemiah had identified himself with his people. He, he uses these words. He says, we have sinned against you. My father's house and I have sinned. He said, we have acted very corruptly against you. Nehemiah praying and confessing those things to God as someone who had never lived in or seen the city of Jerusalem up to that point in time. But now that Nehemiah is in Jerusalem, we see him identifying with his people again in verse 17. He says, the distress we are in, that we may no, no longer be a reproach. Nehemiah not just seeing that he was a part of the problem, like in his prayer of confession, but also seeing that God was calling him to be a part of the solution. Now, as I said last week, between verses 13 through 20, I believe we see three different aspects of stirring that God did in Nehemiah's life. First, that God stirred him to see, and we considered that last week, but then second, that God had stirred him to speak and then third, that God had stirred him to stand, and we're going to consider these other two aspects of stirring in our study today. And I believe we see this second aspect of stirring that God did in Nehemiah in verses 17 and 18, and also in verse 20, that God stirred Nehemiah to speak. We see this in verse 17, then I said to them, Verse 18, and I told them. Verse 20, so I answered them. But notice again that Nehemiah didn't speak right away. In fact, in those first few days, we're told a couple times that he specifically did not speak. In verse 12, he told no one what God had put in his heart. Verse 16, he had not yet told all the different people. 
I believe Nehemiah waited to speak because he had been focused on listening to the voice and leading of the Lord before he spoke. He was listening so that he could speak the things that God had already been putting in his heart for months ahead of this. Nehemiah spoke because he first listened. He heard the voice of the Lord. He became convinced about the leading of the Lord. He had received instruction from the Lord. And because he had received a burden and love for the people of the Lord. And it was from that place that he spoke. And I believe it's crucial that we have those same things in place in our lives too before we speak. Let's just, even not dealing with all the other things I said, if we, if we don't have a love for people, when we speak to somebody about something we're seeing, how do our words often come out? I mean, maybe we're trying to be really nice. But when there's no love, there's no burden for a person, a situation, and we're trying to speak into that, to point out the thing that we're seeing, oftentimes that thing is never received because what's understood on the part of the person who's hearing is this person just wants to point something out, but they don't actually care about me. They don't actually care about the situation that I'm going through. They don't care about the brokenness that I'm dealing with. They don't care about the sin that I'm, that I'm struggling with, the, the temptation that I'm facing. That alone can be all the difference in how things come across to somebody. You know, the Lord wants to stir us to speak but he first wants us to listen, to hear his voice, to, to become convinced about his leading because we've been seeking him when we've, we've been spending time with him. To receive instruction, guidance, wisdom from him, and then to receive a burden, a love for others and situations and places. And, and I was thinking about you know, kind of the point from last week about like seeing and then thinking about the point from today about speaking. And it's like, there's so much more beyond what I could even share from like what we, we considered last week, what I'll even share today that goes into even just those two things. Because it, I don't know about you, but there's too much to see. There's too much that we're exposed to that is all brokenness that it can just be so overwhelming. Like, Nehemiah was not living in a day where he was hearing about things that were happening all around the world, all the time, at the tip of his fingers. That's you and me. And it can be really hard to, to, to see all of that and then know how to process it. And there's so many things that we could potentially speak into. Injustice. And, and evil, and all kinds of things. If, if we just focus on, well, you need, you know, God's stirring us to see, well, like, sometimes it's like, God, I don't want to see all the stuff that I'm seeing. I'm seeing a little too much. And then when we focus on, like, the speaking part, we can go, well, there's so many things to speak about. That's all we can find ourselves doing is just we're always speaking into some new thing. So, have, you know, even considering those two points, there's so much more, there's so much more to those things that we, we can only just scratch the surface of in, in our times here that we really need to be prayerful about. God, help me to be careful how I see into and what I'm really focusing on, what I'm, what I'm allowing into the gate of my eye, you know, my, my mind through my eye gate, you know, like the things that are coming into my mind through my, through the, through the, through the visual Lord, help me to, to know how to filter what I'm really needing to speak into because there's people that just expect you to speak into every potential thing that could ever be spoken into. And, and God, but what, what is it that you're wanting me? What's that thing that you're burdening me for? I'm spending time with you and, and you've been stirring me and, and, and Lord, I've become convinced that you, not because I feel com compelled because of what somebody else is saying to me, 
that I need to say, that they're telling me I need to say, but God, what are those things that you're stirring me to really speak into in these days? You know, when, when we're not listening, when we're not hearing his voice, when we're not becoming convinced about his leading, when we're not receiving his instruction, when we're not receiving it, that burden and love from the Lord, when those things aren't happening, our speaking often just ends up furthering the damage, the brokenness that exists. Maybe speaking into things that the Lord doesn't actually want us to speak into at all. You ever spoken into something after you know the Lord's like, don't say anything? There's that's that part of it. We feel like we know better than him. I got this, Lord. Don't say anything. I, no, I'll be cool. I'll be cool. <laughs> not cool. You're not cool. You don't have it under control. Or maybe we're speaking into something without fully knowing the situation. We don't know someone's motivation we we speak into what we see externally we see action but we don't see motivation we don't see somebody's heart so it can be hard to know what to speak into even in that or maybe speaking into a person's life or in a situation without having god's love or his insight or maybe giving counsel without first receiving the wisdom of god and so what ends up coming out is just we're speaking from our own resources we, we've got to first listen to and be led by the Lord. Receive the love and the, the, the mind, the wisdom of the Lord before we speak. It's vitally important. I think in the day that we live in where there is an abundance of things to be seeing and speaking into, it's crucial that we as the people of God are really listening to the Lord. But, but once we have those things, God will often stir us to speak just like he did with Nehemiah. Stirred to speak into what the Lord has revealed to us and stirred us about after a lot of prayer and leading of his spirit so that others can be awakened to how things really are and be given a hopefulness that God can work in whatever it is that's going on. Don't we see that here? I mean, Nehemiah spoke into the reality of how things really were. Everything's destroyed. We're in reproach. But then he called the people out of the ruined state that they were in, that they had settled into, because God was wanting to do something about the ruins, the damage, the brokenness that existed, and hope needed to be extended. We see that in what Nehemiah continued to say in verse 17. He says, come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. The, the work of rebuilding was not going to be accomplished by one stirred individual who had come to rebuild the walls. Don't worry guys, God called me to this. I got it. You guys can just take a seat. You imagine that? Nehemiah comes and he's just there and he's, t- he's taking the blocks, he's trying to get the things, and everyone's just looking on, like, let's see if this guy really succeeds. No, it was going to require the community of Jewish people there in Jerusalem to make that rebuilding happen. But this invitation was, just, was not just an invitation to work. It was an invitation to grab a hold of hope once again. It was an invitation to see their circumstances differently. Seeing what God could do. An invitation to partner with the Lord in the work He wanted to bring about in rebuilding and renewing and reviving His people. I believe the Lord is stirring us as his church to speak, to use our voices, to identify what's broken, but then to emphasize the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. The one who can do something about the brokenness, the sin that so many find themselves in and that pervades our communities and our world as a whole. 
But having said that, I think the problem for many of us isn't feeling stirred to speak. It's in what we speak, how we use our words. Are we using our words to build up or to tear down? I love it. The Apostle Paul, I think it was in the, one of the letters to the church, the church in Corinth, which, you know, he said some hard things to the church in Corinth because there's a lot of dysfunction happening within the church, right? And so he's, they're, they're corrective letters it, to a large degree. But I, I believe in one of the letters, Paul says, look, like, God's given me this apostolic authority, but he, but he hasn't given it to me to tear down, but to build up. And we could have gone like, yeah, but, you know, like, <laughs> you kind of had every, every right to just kind of tear down because they were really messed up. You could have just told them, just stop, stop it. Just don't. Maybe you should do something different. Like, maybe, we, maybe, you know, maybe this church just needs to, like, take a hiatus. Like, he doesn't do that. He, he understood, like, God's given me this authority because he wants to build. He wants to do something. He wants to, 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 to bring growth and health to the, to, the, to the church, but also to the people. You know, Nehemiah could have put all the blame on the Jews in Jerusalem. He could have criticized and condemned them for the state that they were in, but he accepted blame with them and called them into a place of hopefulness as he declared what God had done putting all the focus on the Lord, which we see in verse 18. Notice that Nehemiah didn't just rally the people to the work by voicing the need, but also by testifying about what God had done through his life and through the king. I just see in Nehemiah this eagerness. I want to tell you how good God's been. I want to tell you all the ways that God's hand has been at work. You got to know what God's been doing. You got to understand. Listen, let me tell you what the king said. Let me tell you about the letters that he gave me. Guys, he's funding the whole stinking thing. He's going to, he's just bankrolling like, boop, 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 boop. He's like, and you get a wall, and you get a wall. And it's like Oprah's gift day thing, right? You get a car, and you get a car. Everyone's just losing their stinking minds all over the place. Like, ah! Ah! Like, but can you imagine for them, that's what this would have been. You mean, we've never known anything different. It's only ever been I've walked past these walls and they're just ruins. And all the gates are just burned to the ground. That's, that's how it's been for as long as any of them could ever remember. And Nehemiah's like, this is what God's done. This is what our God has done. This is how good he is. The king is going to provide everything that we need. And isn't that what our king Jesus does? For He provides everything that we need. Not necessarily everything that we want. Everything that we need. If the Lord is our shepherd, Psalm 23, what's the very first thing? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not be in want. I shall not lack any good thing. This would have been like the most celebratory moment here as Nehemiah is sharing things. God's going to do it. But, but after hearing the need, which they were well aware of, after hearing the testimony about all that God was doing so that the rebuilding could happen, we see that there was this unified response from the people. Let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. And then we're told that that response was followed by action. They, they set their hands to this good work. Like, they couldn't, it, they couldn't get to work fast enough. They couldn't, I mean, they were so excited. They're like, God's going to do it? Like, let's do it. Get up, let's get up, let's build, let's do this thing. 
let's set our hands to the work. You just see this eagerness of the people here in this moment. Like, we just want to see all that God's seeing. Understand they're not seeing it completed. Nehemiah didn't just, 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 he didn't go, listen guys, everyone close your eyes for a moment. Everyone's eyes closed. The moment that you open your eyes, the walls and the gates will be there. Miraculously. He didn't say that. It would have been like, we're going to get to the work. It's like, but we've got to do the work. There was a work to be done. There was rubble to be cleared away. There was new things that needed to be built. That the people living in Jerusalem needed to be awakened to what was going on all around them. But the faith and confidence and testimony of Nehemiah awakened hope in these people, encouraged them, and this stirred them and moved them to take action. But again, it wasn't just going to happen miraculously, that these things were just going to be rebuilt in an instant without the involvement of people. No, God wanted to use people to make this happen. The people had a responsibility to act upon what the Lord was wanting them to participate in. Our involvement, our activity, I believe is oftentimes the way God is wanting to answer prayers and bring about the work of rebuilding and renewal that's needing to take place. I, I think, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe this is just me, but I think sometimes when I pray, maybe when you pray, the only thing that we're going for there is just like that miraculous, in an instant, God just divinely intervenes. It's all Him. I didn't even have to do anything. Just stand and see the salvation of the Lord sort of moment. Like, I think oftentimes that might be kind of what we're expecting in our prayer. And sometimes what happens is we're praying for God to do something and God's going, cool, I want to do that too but I want you to be involved in my plan to make that thing happen. God, heal this relationship. And God's like, cool, I want to do that, but it's going to involve you being a part of it. You're going to be an instrument in my hand to help make that healing happen. God, I save my coworker, Lord, save my neighbor, save my parents, save my sibling. God's like, I want to do that. But I want you to partner with me in making that happen. I want you to be my hands and feet going to those people, showing my love, sharing the hope of the gospel of Jesus with them, and then continuing to do it over time, to not give up. You know, I think there's a lot of things that maybe we can look at in our lives and we're going, I see the ruin. It's not like I don't see it. I see it. I see the stuff in my life. I see the stuff that in this relationship and in my workplace and in my neighborhood and here in our communities and out in the world, we see how things are. But maybe we're not stirred like we should be. For those things. Maybe we're praying and we're going, we're just expecting, and God, you just do it. I'm not really going to put forth any effort, but God, you do it. Make it happen, Lord. Do something about this thing. And he's like, okay, let's do that. Maybe for some of us today, he's inviting us to have a different perspective on some of that. And maybe this morning we're just seeing some of the responsibility and the response that God's maybe desiring to have happen in our lives to go, Lord, okay, I want to pray that you, and, and we can pray that. God, you can move in the miraculous. God, you can do something in an instant. But God, at the same time, if you're wanting to have me a role to play in any of that, that God help me to see that. Lord, speak into my life those things that I, that I would be convinced that that's what you're wanting to do, and then I could walk in that. Set my hand to the work. But let's look at verse 19. After all this excitement, 
This, this rally of like, let's do it, let's work, set our hands, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? I l- listen to sports talk radio sometimes in my car. And uh, there's a, this duo of guys that are on the local station. And, and they have a segment where they always just say, what are you doing? And that's just, it, like, I want to just, what are, you, what are you thinking? What are you guys even thinking? You really, you're really going to do this? 92 years now? Really? I don't think so. We're introduced, uh, we were introduced to, to Sanballat and Tobiah in verse 10. And there's more that could be said about those guys. We'll see them throughout the rest of this book. We'll even find that because of compromise within the Jewish people and their intermarrying with the people of the land that Sanballat and Tobiah had connected themselves and made alliances with the people of Jerusalem and even Eliashib the priest. We find in chapter 13 that he had cleared out one of the storerooms of the temple and made a room for one of these guys. And later on in the book, we're going to find how Nehemiah deals with that really swiftly. Uh, but, but these guys, just there's this opposition and, and joined by this man named Geshem the Arab. And we see their tactic. They laughed at and despised them. That, that, that word laugh in the Hebrew speaks of mocking, of treating with contempt. That word despise Uh, Speaking of looking down upon and belittling. And our spiritual enemy will use the same tactics with us in order to discourage us. To cause fear and confusion in our lives. To try and cripple us and hinder us from walking confidently in the thing or things that the Lord has called us to. To keep us from faith and obedience. I mean... How many of us, if we've ever dealt with some sort of temptation or maybe some sort of a pattern of sin in our lives that we've wanted so badly for God to to bring us out of into a place of victory, but we found ourselves sort of going back to those same things, that when we have that desire to, to, to do things differently, to live a life that's set apart to the Lord, to walk in obedience to the Lord, that that's what happens with us. The enemy oftentimes will go, you really think that things are going to change? Really? You really think that you can not do that thing anymore? You really think that things are going to be different? And it just, it keeps us from ever even trying because then that, that discouragement turns into condemnation. And, and it's just like, you're right. I just, I'm, it's never going to happen. I'm always going to be, this is always going to be what I'm dealing with. And God's going like, that's not for me. That's not for me. I want to do that thing. I, I want to bring that change. I want to bring transformation. I want to bring you know, give you victory over these struggles in your life. And the enemy just wants to keep us down and keep us from trying. See, the, the enemies of the Jews here didn't care when they weren't trying. They didn't care when they were just living in the destruction. Cool, everything's fine. But as soon as Nehemiah came, remember, deeply disturbed that he came seeking the well-being of the children of Israel. And now the mockery. See, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem knew that if they could get the people to listen to their voices instead of listening to the voice of Nehemiah, who was speaking the things God was wanting them to hear, that the people would just stay in the brokenness, in the distress, in the reproach, 
And that even though Nehemiah was God's man with God's message doing God's work, that their ridicule and their mocking and their discouragement and the confusion and the fear tactics would end up influencing the people to stay in their current state of distress and reproach and and the walls and gates being broken down instead of getting to experience the rebuilding and renewal and revival that God had for them. It's so important that we're careful who and what we listen to. Who we're letting have a voice into our lives. Who and what we're being influenced by. That we not listen to the voice of our spiritual enemy or those who are tools of the enemy, but instead listen to the voice of Jesus, our good shepherd, who came to give us life and that more abundantly. The enemy just wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's it. There's no flourishing that the enemy's going, it's good. It's good for them. Like, how can I destroy? How can I disrupt and divide and just paralyze? Like, that's that's it. That's all that they're after. And God forbid that we would stay in those things when Jesus is going, I have life, abundant life for you and for me. Why would we sit in the ruins and stay there when Jesus is going, I'm calling you into hope. I want to bring renewal. I want to build again. Maybe some of us need God to stir that hope within us because we've just kind of settled in to whatever that ruin might look like for us. But, but right away, as soon as the people were rallied and excited and committed to putting their hands to this good work, the enemy was there to oppose, and the same thing still happens to this day. The moment you try to put your hand to whatever that thing is that the Lord's going, hey, I want you to do this. The enemy will be there to oppose. But let's look at verse 20. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we as servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Here in verse 20, we see the, the third aspect of stirring that God did in Nehemiah, and that's that he stirred him to stand. You know, this wasn't going to be the end of the opposition. It was just the beginning of heavier opposition to come. But, but Nehemiah didn't cave to the pressure. He didn't compromise his message or his mission. No, the Lord had been building strength, perseverance into Nehemiah's life before this building an unwavering faith and confidence into Nehemiah before this, so that when the opposition came, Nehemiah would stand strong in the Lord and represent the Lord when facing opposition. Know this, that the Lord wants to stir and prepare and fortify you and me to be able to stand against the opposition of our spiritual enemy, to stand firmly and confidently in who the Lord is and what the Lord has said and what he's able to do. And in Nehemiah's example in verse 20, we see that part of the standing also included speaking. But but notice that Nehemiah didn't mock them in return. He didn't stoop to their level. He didn't trash talk them or devalue them, but that as he begins to answer them, he puts all the focus on the God of heaven who had called him to this work. It's so important for us in our day to have tough skin but soft hearts as we interact with others especially those who reject Jesus and come against us because we're seeking to follow him. How we conduct ourselves in this world matters to our God. Do we know that? How we treat people, even enemies, matters to our God. In order to have tough skin, we've got to let the Lord build a deep 
spiritual toughness, strength, confidence in us. And in order for us to have a soft heart, we've got to stay close to the heart of our God. We've got to keep abiding in Jesus daily. We've got to know the heart of our God, which happens through discipleship, growth, looking to Jesus who shows us God's heart. And we've got to allow the Lord to to do deep heart work in us, recognizing pride, selfishness, and areas of weakness and sin even, and, and letting him humble us and transform us and conform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. As Nehemiah stood strong in the Lord, he replied, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. So the, the one who rules, rules over all, who alone is God, is able to accomplish what he desires to bring about. And with that in mind, Nehemiah continued, therefore we as servants will arise and build. The, the right response for Nehemiah and the rest of the Jewish people was to obey And serve the God of heaven. Submitting to whatever his plan was. And his plan required them to arise. To get up and build. And so that's what they were going to do. And no enemy was going to stop them from doing it. And then finally in the the final, final part of verse 20. Nehemiah let their enemies know that they had no heritage. Or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah didn't entertain their mockery or lies or fear tactics, but instead he emphasized the God of heaven whose lordship and authority and power and will they alone would listen to and obey. You know, Nehemiah's example is one we we need to follow still today. And, And while we focused on how God stirred Nehemiah to speak and stand, I also want to point out that, that speaking and standing are things that God does with us too. Understand the Lord loves us enough to speak things to us that we need to hear. Pointing out how things truly are. But that he'll also speak and extend hope to us. He'll call us out of things out of sin, out of brokenness, out of despair, telling us to come to him because he wants to build and rebuild the right kinds of things within us. But he's also the one who stands with his people, who will never leave us or forsake us, who's infinitely greater and stronger than any enemy that we face, physical or spiritual or mental. And because he's standing with us, we don't need to fear. We can have confidence to live out the the lives that he's called us to live, knowing that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. And listen, our present salvation gives us future confidence that we will get to stand in his presence one day in heaven. Each of us who are this morning disciples of Jesus Christ need to speak and will be stirred by him to speak. But we first got to make sure that we're listening to him, that we're we're being led by the Spirit of God, receiving direction and wisdom from Him, receiving a burden and His agape love for others and situations and places. But we also need to stand because opposition is going to come and we need God to build strength and perseverance and confidence and faith and hope into us so that we stand firmly and confidently in who our God is and what He said and what He's able to do. And along with speaking and standing, we also have a role and responsibility to arise and build. To set our hands to the good work of his kingdom. Our God has good works for each of us to set our hands to. Things that he's prepared for us that he just wants us to walk in. You know, we're not saved by good works. But as saved people, we are called to be a people who abound in and maintain good works. 
works that others would see and would cause them to give glory to our Father in heaven. The God of heaven himself is able to prosper us. Not prosperity doctrine prosper us, but he's able to accomplish what he desires in and through us. He has grace and power for us to carry out his work of rebuilding and renewal. But listen, we've got to come to him. You and I don't have everything in our own power to do all the things, but the Lord has power for us. He has grace for us. He has resources that you and I need. But we've got to come to him. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. You know, if, if anyone here today is not a disciple of Jesus, you could be a fan of Jesus. There are lots of fans of Jesus. Jesus has a lot of fans, right? A lot of people admire him. He was a great teacher. He said some great things. He did really nice things. He did a lot of good. But Jesus made some really radical claims. He could have done a lot of great things, but if he isn't who he said he is, he was crazy. He was a person who did good, but he was the craziest person ever to walk on this planet because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the only way, truth, and life that no one could come to the Father except through him. And as we've talked about, you know, oh, they set their hands to the work and there's good works that God has for us. Again, for those who are disciples of Jesus, but for those that don't have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, the only work that God is desiring from that person, Jesus spoke into this in John chapter six, because people asked him, how can we do the works of God? Just tell us what we should do, Jesus. What do we do? Jesus says, Doing the works of God, to do the works of God is to believe in the one whom he sent. How do you do the works of God? How do you become a person who God goes, I'm going to save you. I'm going to give you my salvation, my forgiveness. I'm going I'm to redeem you. It's by believing in Jesus Christ. It's putting your faith in Jesus Christ and that requires humility because it means that you are not Lord of your life. Jesus is. I'm not a God. Jesus is God. I need salvation. I need forgiveness because I've sinned and I've blown and I've fallen short of God's righteous standard. But Jesus made the way for you and me. And we praise him for that. That the work that he's desiring for us to do is not 10 steps, it's not 100 steps. It's one, believe. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And, you know, maybe that's somebody today and, and you're going, look, like, this is all great. I know there's brokenness in my life. I know there's sin in my life. I don't really know what to do about it. I've tried to stop, but I can't. Jesus is holding out that salvation as a free gift to anyone who will receive it. You and I will never be good enough. We cannot earn his salvation. But he's not looking for us to earn it. He just wants to give it freely to anyone who will humble themselves and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and repent, turn away from their sin and turn in faith to him. And so let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the example of Nehemiah, Lord. Lord, the work that you did through him, Lord, how he responded in faith to the things that you called him to. But Lord, also that you wanted to do something about the, the, the brokenness and the damage that existed in the lives of your people, the Israelites who were living in Jerusalem at that time in history. 
Lord, a work that they had never been able to accomplish on their own, but a work, Lord, that you were going to bring about, you were going to provide for. Lord, we think about our own lives, God, ways that, Lord, there's, there's ruins maybe in, in our own hearts, God, things that we've just become accustomed to, that maybe for some of us today, you're just wanting us to get up out of those things. Lord, you're wanting to, to rebuild the ruins that exist in our own hearts, Lord, our own lives. And God, ways that uh, we want you to move miraculously, Lord, and do things in an instant. But Lord, we also know that oftentimes as we pray for these things, that God, you're wanting us to, to respond in faith and obedience. Lord, you want us to partner with you. So God, help us to respond. Help us to respond in faith, to respond in obedience. God, help us. Lord, stir us. Speak to us. Lord, burden us. Lord, that we could then know what to speak and how to speak. Lord, give us strength, Lord, so that we can stand. To stand strong in you. Because, God, there are so many things that try to just knock us over in this life. Lord, so many things in an instant news, Lord, that can just cripple us. God, help us to stand. And, Lord, help us to speak about you. Lord, that the thing that's on the front of our minds and on the tip of our tongues, Lord, is not our agenda, Lord. It's not our soapbox, Lord, but it's, it's you. It's the hope of Jesus. Lord, would you lead us in these days? Lord, would you do a work of rebuilding and renewal and revival in us, in our church, Lord, in our families, in our neighborhoods, Lord, here throughout the Diablo Valley, Lord, and beyond? God, would you move in ways that only you can? But, but maybe this morning for some, it, you're, you're here and you're just, you're in that camp where it's like, you know what, the only thing that Jesus is actually calling you to do, the only work that he's looking for you to, to set your hand to is that work of belief. If that's anybody this morning and you're going, look, I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to know that my place in heaven is secure. I want to know, I want to experience the life, the salvation, the grace of Jesus, the love of Jesus. That's for you this morning. But you've got to come to Jesus for those things. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I'd love to pray for you this morning. And you're going, I want to, I want to make that decision. I want to open my heart to the Lord. I want my sins forgiven. I want my debt paid. I want the hope of Jesus. Is that anybody at all this morning? Lord, I, I, I just pray, God, for those who maybe even would feel too timid to ever raise their hand to do something like that. But Lord, you see their heart. Lord, you know. Lord, I pray that God, even now you'd be moving and working in them, that Lord, those who, who right now, even this moment are going like, that, that's me and I need Jesus, I need his salvation, that, that Lord, you'd open their hearts to you, to encourage if that's anybody, Lord, you would just do that work and that you would just even say to the Lord in your heart, you know, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I, I need your salvation. I want your salvation. Save me. Forgive me. Be my Lord. Be my God. I want your hope, Jesus. I want you to do something about the ruins of my life, Jesus. So would you seal me with your Holy Spirit? Make me a new creation in Christ Jesus where all the old things would pass away and behold, all things would become new for me. Jesus, I put my trust in you. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose again. 
So Jesus, save me. I repent of my sin even now. I just encourage you if you've done that this morning. The Bible says you will be saved. You believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. Jesus' death, his resurrection. You'll be saved. And Lord, would you continue that work of rebuilding and renewal and revival in us? Lord God, that as we see what you see, Lord, what's, what's not where it should be, that Lord, you would also give us hope of what you're able to do and what you're wanting to do. Lord, we just want to sing your praise now in response. In Jesus' name, amen.